At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Good Morning, as we learn from the cries of Israel recorded in the book of Lamentations. Together, we'll discover the depth of God's love for us, even in seasons of suffering, and learn to take our sorrows to the Savior. Well, today we get a chance to go further in God's Word, and I couldn't be uh, more thrilled to be able to conclude this very, very enriching study that we've been in in the book of Lamentations. You know, when we started this study, uh, I let you know up front, I was very transparent that this was no light read, that this was not your typical summer series, but yet I felt, along with the rest of our teaching team and pastors, that it was an absolute must that it was a critical series. Why? It's because of what lamentation teaches us. It teaches us that trouble does come, that there are dark days, that there are low moments in life, that valleys will touch all of us. But it also teaches us not to fix our eyes on the rubble of life, but to turn our eyes to the redeemer of our hopes, how to take our sorrows to the Savior. And what we've studied so far are four chapters, each acrostic poems, poems that were written by an ancient writer, most probably the prophet Jeremiah, about the destruction and devastation of his city, his nation, and even his own personal life. But what we've seen through it all is great is God's faithfulness, that God is faithful to us even in the valley, even in the low moments. David said it this way, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. How many praise God that he is Emmanuel, God with us, never leaving, never forsaking. And as we get to this final chapter, it's not lost on me that uh, the human heart is hardwired for a happy ending. How many love movies that end with a happy ending? It's quite unsettling when a movie doesn't end that way. You know, this week, my wife and I got the rare privilege of being able to watch a movie together. It was kind of together in between helping children. Uh, But we got a chance to watch a movie, and I won't give it all away. Maybe you haven't seen it, but this movie chronicles the relationship between an adult father, an aging father, and his adult daughter daughter. The father has severe memory loss, Alzheimer's. The daughter is his caretaker. It's a very powerful and emotional movie. It draws you in to what it means to live with severe memory loss. The disorientation, the confusion of it all, even the anger, the fits of rage that often accompany that. Some of you have experienced it firsthand as a caregiver. And yet, as you watch this, you see the daughter and the impact and the weight of caring for her father, the one that she loves, as he loses his memory and in some points and cases even forgets who she is. You see the weight of what it means to be a caregiver, how she ages through the movie, how it weighs on her physically, emotionally, and even spiritually. And what, as the movie gets towards the end, what you're hoping for is a happy ending But as the movie concludes, it concludes kind of ominously, no happy ending. It ends with this deep sense of sadness, almost with a lump in your throat and tears in your eyes. And it's unsettling, but yet it's real. It's the reality that many of us face. Sometimes things don't end happily. 
But yet as we conclude this book, what I want to argue for you is that Israel's story in the book of Lamentations ends on a low note practically, but on a high note spiritually. Sometimes in the lowest moments of our lives, God is at work most powerfully. This is exactly what he said to Paul. As Paul cried out to him three times, the scripture says, about a thorn in the flesh where he says, Lord, remove it. And the Lord's response was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect when? In your weakness. God perfects his strength. God displays his grace towards us. Maybe in its greatest uh, uh, display is in our weaknesses or in our difficult moments. And so as we get to this fifth and final poem chapter of Lamentations, we're going to see the devastation again of the city, of the nation, uh, the sadness of Jeremiah's life, but we're going to end on a high note spiritually. Let's go to Lamentations chapter 5, and what we're going to discover today is that lament brings us back to God. That's the whole goal of all of this. No new theme here. We've picked this up chapter after chapter, poem after poem, that ultimately what God was doing as a loving father is disciplining uh, his his, uh, chosen people, Israel, not because he had abandoned them, not to leave them in desolation, but all because he wanted them to return to him and to avoid even further devastation. It's a hard, hard story and time in Israel's life, but ultimately it is an act of God's love whenever he allows us to get a taste of our consequences, but but preserves a pathway of redemption for us. There are three things that the uh, writer, the poet Jeremiah laments as he closes this book of poetry. The first thing, we'll see it in the first seven verses of chapter five, is that he laments their disgrace, the disgrace of Israel. Look at what he says here in verse number one. He starts with this word, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been uh, turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans and fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. He goes on to say in verse number five, our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get uh, bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. So much there that speaks to how far Israel had fallen. But before we look at the depths of their disgrace, I want you to see the first word that starts this chapter. You know, this chapter is a little bit different than the previous ones because it's not an acrostic using the Hebrew alphabet. Though it is 22 verses, he starts with a different word. Typically, he starts with the question, how? How has this befallen us? But no longer is that the question. He knows exactly how they've gotten to where they are right now. He's very much self-aware spiritually that it's because of their own sin and rebellion against God. He knows that sin has consequences. I pray that we would know that as well. 
I pray that we would know that there is no such thing as secret sin. There is no such way as getting away with uh, disobeying God. Eventually it catches up with you. And praise God that he is merciful and he allows us, if we are trapped in sin, to turn to him so that we can know freedom and mercy. But he's clear on where they are and why they're there. But here's what he starts with, the word remember, remember. Now, why would you ever have to tell God who knows all things, who is omniscient, knowing the beginning, the end, and everything in between to remember? Well, certainly not because he has forgotten. God has not lost track of who Israel is. He's not forgotten what's going on. He does not need his memory jog. No, in the Hebrew, this word remember means to see and to act. What he is simply saying is, God, see us. Don't turn away from us. Don't look away from us. Remember that you love us. Remember our covenant with you. Remember our intimacy. Remember that we are your people. And Lord, please act. He is doing exactly what you and I should do whenever our lives are overwhelmed with disappointment and disgrace. It's no point in complaining to people who can't change it. If we are finding ourselves where Israel finds herself in this chapter, the best thing we can do is to take our sorrows to the Savior and to cry out to God because only he can fix the brokenness of our lives and the brokenness of our nation. He goes on to say, all of these things have befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. What does disgrace look like? Well, in verse number two, it was a loss of the inheritance of Israel. What is the inheritance? For them, it's the land. They were promised land, but now their land had been taken by foreign invaders, even worse. We're gonna read in a little bit that the city itself, the crown jewel of Israel, which was Jerusalem, was so desolate that animals had taken over. He goes on in verses, uh, yeah, in verse number three. This is, uh, in my opinion, the most painful verse in this entire chapter. He declares that Israel is an orphan, that they are fatherless, and that they are a widow. In many ways, this is his way of saying that we are without God in the world because who was the husband of Israel? God had declared himself to be their husband. Who was the father of Israel? God had declared Israel to be his nation son, his chosen son. And by declaring that we are orphans and we are widows, they're declaring that, God, we're without you in the world. Not because you have forsaken us, but because we turned away from you. Whenever you feel distant from God, know that it's not because he moved. It's because we moved. But it's a way back home again. And praise God that Jesus provides us with a way back home again, that if we fix our eyes on him and if we trust in him, he says, come unto me, all you who are weary. That's not just talking about physical weariness, but more importantly, spiritual weariness, weariness of your disgrace, come to me and I will give you rest, rest from your pain. Verse number four tells about the economic exploitation they were experiencing. They were being heavily taxed for their water and for their wood. They couldn't even get basic necessities, which leads us to maybe the deepest disgrace of all. Verse number six, they had to, uh, they had to cut a treaty or give their hand, if you will, to Egypt and Assyria just to get their basic needs met. 
Now, it's hard for us to properly relate to this, but if you know anything about biblical history, Egypt and Assyria were the arch enemies of Israel. They were opposed to Israel. It's like us getting to a place where we say, well, we have to submit ourselves uh, to Russia and to China in order to get uh, our basic needs met. Maybe even more severe for Israel to say this. But why were they here? It's because, again, they had sinned against God. Look at what it says in verse number seven. Our fathers sinned. I don't think this verse is so much saying that children have to pay for the sins of their parents by way of uh, the sin debt passing from one generation to the next. I think it's a way of God saying that uh, when parents act, it has consequences beyond just that generation, that the next generation feels the impact of a parent's actions. And so here, Israel was experiencing the impact of the sins of their fathers. What we do today carries weight tomorrow. The decisions we make today do impact our children, whether for the good, if we are covenant-keeping, honoring God, loving our families, or if we turn away from him, it brings judgment. But here is where we need to remember. We need to remember who's writing this and why he's writing it. It is Jeremiah that's writing it. And in a nation that has turned its back against God, there is a righteous remnant of people that are still left. Jeremiah represents that righteous remnant of people. Israel as a nation had turned against God, but there was a righteous remnant on the inside. So it is in our case, my friends, as we look at our nation right now, in light of this text, we need to have a bright, blinking neon sign going off in our own hearts and in our own minds that says, this too can happen to you. When we look at our nation, we have to determine that uh, Proverbs 14.34 is true. And what does Proverbs 14.34 tell us? That righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. Jeremiah throughout four chapters have lamented over what's happened to the nation, but also what's happened in his own personal life. And here he is praying a prayer of repentance on behalf of himself, but also on behalf of his nation, saying, God, have mercy on us because our sins have destroyed our nation. When we look at our nation, we have to understand that military might will never be enough to rescue us from moral bankruptcy. When we look at our nation, we have to determine that our immorality, our running God out of the public square, our turning our backs on Jesus and pretending as if he is not real and he is not Lord only leads to one destination, and that is national devastation. Again, this too can happen to you regardless of economic prowess, regardless of military might. We who are here in this hour can't read this without drawing a line to the moral condition of our nation and saying, Lord, we are vulnerable. We too are at risk of becoming what Israel had become disgraced. But this is the grace of God that he left a righteous remnant in the heart of that nation to pray on behalf 
of the nation. Jeremiah represented that righteous remnant. You and I, who have put our trust and faith in Jesus, represent the righteous remnant for this nation. And just like Jeremiah and those who have remained faithful to Yahweh in his generation had to cry out to God on behalf of their nation, you and I, night and day, need to cry out to God on behalf of our nation, saying, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, or our sins will lead us to disgrace as well. What I love about God is that he hears the cries of his people. How many praise God for that? That he hears the cries of his people? That when we turn to him, that he is just, that he will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Jeremiah did exactly what we're supposed to do when we find ourselves in disgrace. He takes his sorrow to the Savior. He cries out to God for mercy. But then we see a different lament, a lament for being enslaved. He laments over the fact that they were slaves. Let's read a few verses out of the next section. Let's look at verses eight and nine first. He says this, slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Let's jump to verse number 15. He says this, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us for we have sinned. What I love again about Jeremiah is that he is very self-aware spiritually. You know what the worst deception in all the world is? It's not, as terrible as it is, it's not when we deceive others, but when we are self-deceived. When we trick ourselves into thinking that we're okay when we're not. How do we know if we're okay? Well, the Bible becomes our litmus test, not us comparing ourselves against one another. It makes no difference if I think I measure up and I'm more spiritual than you. You are not my standard and I am not yours. The standard for all of us is Jesus, and it's the Word of God. And when comparing our lives to the Word of God, then and only then can we know whether or not we are truly in good standing or not. And if we are far from God, we need to do exactly what Jeremiah did again. He cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, we have sinned, verse number 16. Look at what he says here in verse number 8. Not only were they, they slaves, but notice what he says here, slaves rule over us. So so Babylon had come in and, and conquered them as a pagan nation, and not only were they up under slavery, but the Babylonian Empire had their slaves ruling over Israel. They were slave people being ruled over by the lowest rung in the social rank of Babylon. That's how low they had fallen. They couldn't even get bread without risking their lives. Verse number 16, the joy that was in their hearts had ceased. There was no more dancing. The crown, what crown are they talking about? God had promised and he had already done it, that he had crowned them with favor. They were his chosen people, glory and honor. And by the way, in Christ, he crowns us with similar things. All of that had fallen from their head. Why? Because they had sinned. Notice what Jeremiah is saying. He is saying it's sin that makes you a slave. And many of us are bound by sin. And here's what Jesus says, picking up on this theme, Jesus says in John chapter eight, verse number 34, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. 
What does it mean to be a slave? It means that someone else is your master, forcing you to do what you don't want to do. And when you're a slave to sin, sin becomes your master. I'm sharing this with you because I care for your soul. And ultimately what I know is that many of us make the wrong decision of thinking that I'll flirt with sin and only go so far. I'll visit with sin, but then I'll come back home again. But as I've said over and over again, once you give the keys of the car over to sin and Satan, you will go further than what you are willing to go. It will cost you more than what you are able to pay. And maybe you find yourself in a mess, in a mess that is so complicated and complex that you are wondering like Israel, how did we get here and how can we get out? I've weaved for myself a web of deception. I have ensnared myself because of my own bad choices. Well, here's the good news for you, is that in that same chapter of John chapter eight, he goes on to say these words in verse number 36, for whom the Son of Man has set free is what? Free indeed. Oh, I need to say that again. Whom the Son of Man has set free is what? Free indeed. Yes, you cannot free yourself. Yes, you cannot save yourself. But there is one who rescues us. If we turn to him and confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of unrighteousness. How many praise God for our Redeemer, the one who forgives our sins, our Savior? Jesus invites us, especially those who find themselves ensnared to sin, to turn to him. And this is the beauty of lamentations. On a practical level, it ends on a low note. They are in devastation. Their nation is gone. Their inheritance is gone. The temple has even been ransacked. They are in disgrace. But spiritually, spiritually, they're exactly where God wants them to be. Spiritually, they have awakened to the fact that we need you, Jesus. We need you, Yahweh. We need you, Lord. And I pray that today, some of you might find yourself in the midst of maybe what you would describe to be one of the worst seasons of your life, but maybe exactly where God wants you to be with your eyes on him. Because as we look to the Savior, as we look to God, he will give us a peace that surpasses all our understanding. The third thing that he laments is their estrangement from God. They, they have a distant relationship from God. And he closes with these words, starting in verse number 17. He says, for this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. You know, in studying for this particular message, uh, many commentators noted the fact that in ancient Israel, they would often, when reading through this book of poems, interchange or reverse the last two verses. Now, why do you think they would do that? Why do you think they would interchange or reverse the last two verses? It's because just like us, their hearts are hardwired for a happy ending. 
For them, it was really hard to end with verse number 22 because it just seems like it ends so low. And so they want, they want to re- reverse this. They want to reverse uh, this story, this outcome. But again, I want you to remember that sometimes we may be in a low place practically, but in a high place spiritually. And here's the wonderful thing about life. Where you are spiritually will determine your trajectory. If you are right with God, it doesn't make a difference where you're at in your practical life. Eventually, you're going to see blessing upon blessing. But when you're wrong with God, no matter how high you are in your practical life, it's all vulnerable. In verse number 17, he writes that their heart had become sick, sick with heaviness and sadness because of their sin. He goes on to say that Mount Zion, the place of God's covenant, he says that this place is now desolate. Jackals prowl over it. He goes on to ask a question that maybe you've asked before, and that is, Lord, have you utterly rejected us? The last verse. The last verse depicts a person who is so deeply in darkness that they don't know whether or not they've sinned so much that it's irredeemable. Maybe you've been there before. Maybe you've been at a place where you feel like, I have messed up so bad that I'm not worthy of forgiveness. I have blown it so much that I'm not worthy of mercy. But I want you to know something. I want to bust your bubble, but you're not that special. The fact of the matter is there is no sin on earth that's greater than what he did on Calvary. Let me say that again. There is no sin on earth that is greater than what he did on Calvary. Mount up all of your sins, and it is not greater than the power of one precious drop of the blood of a merciful Savior. And so when he says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, you are included in that. God's arms are not so short that he cannot save. And I like to say it this way. If God can save me, he can save anybody. I want you to know, God is able to save you and rescue you even when you've blown it beyond your own ability to forgive yourself. Praise God that he does not consult with you on whether or not you're worthy of redemption. Praise God that he doesn't take a poll or a vote. This is not a democratic process. Praise God that he shows us mercy because he is mercy. He shows us love because he is love. He shows us grace because he is grace. And all he wants us to do is to respond to his invitation. And even in the midst of the worst national moment that Israel could think of, even in the darkest moment of Jeremiah's personal and private life, come some of the sweetest words that you will ever hear in verse number 19. I love verse number 19. Verse number 19 is praise in the midst of pain. Look at what he says. In the midst of all of it, the mountain is overtaken by jackals. Zion has fallen, sickness of heart. In the midst of all of the despair, he says, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Jeremiah had mastered something that you and I, friends, have to master, and that is praise in the midst of pain. 
Jeremiah had learned that God is the source for my joy and my hope and that my joy returns not when my circumstances change, but when my heart begins to give thanks in spite of my circumstances. Some of us are waiting to praise God after our circumstances change, after we get the new boss or the promotion or the house or the car or whatever you're hoping for. But what if your situation was not going to change in the short term? Is God still worthy of the praise? How many have purpose in their heart that he is worthy of my praise in spite of what's going on around me? Don't wait for your emotions before you praise God. You praise God and your emotions will catch up. What Jeremiah determined is that God is worthy of praise even in the midst of pain. My friends, we have to learn how to praise God even in the midst of pain, suffering, and sorrow because it's there. It's in that valley as we begin to lift our voices to the Lord that God responds. God responds to the praises of his people when we trust in him. And so he goes on to say, verse number 21, which is the heart of it all, the conclusion of the matter, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old. Restore us to yourself, God. This is exactly where God wanted the nation to come. He he wanted them to get to a place where their only prayer is, God, we need you. I don't know if that gets you excited, but that gets me excited because I believe that if God does that for Israel, God can do it for our nation as well. A nation that has legislated abortion, a nation nation that uh, is is marked by so much corruption and injustice. But I believe that just like Israel, that if our nation will turn to God with with our whole hearts, if our nation and the righteous remnant within it will begin to cry out to God, he will restore us back to himself as well. How many believe that with me? There is division, there is exploitation, there is all of the sins of Israel that are present in our nation as well. But why would God leave us a book of lament to give us a pathway back home? Some of you may have heard of the uh, classic book, Pilgrim's Progress. How many have ever heard of that before? If you've never read it, you're in sin. That's a joke, but it is one of the most classic pieces of Christian literature ever written, uh, written in the 17th century around 1680 uh, and um, by John Bunyan, and it chronicles, it's an allegory, it chronicles the life of a young man who's named Christian as he leaves his hometown, which is the city of destruction or earth, and he goes for the celestial city, and on his journey, he's encountering all these different people that are trying to get him off his path. And one of the people that he encounters is a man called Despair. And he is trapped by despair. He is taken to a land of despair. And it's in the land of despair that he remembers the roadmap for getting back home again. And the roadmap for getting back to God again, he says, is thankfulness of heart. It was thankfulness of heart that got him from the land of despair back on the road to the celestial city. Maybe you have wandered away from God. You can get back home again as you turn to him, turning from your own self-sufficiency. Let's do away with the foolishness of thinking, I'll clean myself up and then I'll come to God. 
If you could clean yourself up and then come to God, he wouldn't have had to go to that cross. But he went to the cross because we had a sin that we couldn't pay. But how many praise God that he paid that for us, and now we who don't deserve mercy can receive mercy and grace. And so today I encourage you as we conclude this wonderful, powerful book of lament to end on a high note, to turn to God. And if you're ensnared by sin, ask him for forgiveness for your own sins. But if you are right with God, if you search your heart and you say, I I believe, Pastor Chris, I'm right with God, then your job as a part of the righteous remnant is to pray for our nation that God would have mercy upon us. Everyone stand. We're going to conclude with a moment of worship. And as our worship team comes back out to lead us in that, I want to pray with you. If today you need to give your heart to the Savior, do so today. Come to the altar. We'll pray with you afterwards. Or if you're watching online, just communicate there in the chat uh, screen, and we will respond to you. Let's pray together. Father, our hearts today are heavy for sin as we look at the condition of our homes, our family, our communities, our, our nation, marriages destroyed, families broken, generation that has been lied to about so many things. But we also know, God, the road back home. Jesus, you said that we know the way. Thomas asked, what is the way? You said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Help us to turn to you. Bless as only you can. Thank you for mercy and salvation. We give you praise. And it's in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus we pray. And all of God's people said a big amen. Come on and give God praise. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.